Well, I got up and, uh, as I do on the Sunday after church last week and read this week's readings and realized that this is Good Shepherd Sunday because on the, in the fourth Sunday of Easter we always read uh, John's story or Jesus uh, describing himself as the Good Shepherd. So what that all means has got to be part of the sermon. But I decided that it might be good to preach about the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, because it is read throughout the great 50 days of Easter. And today, in the Acts of the Apostles, in the reading, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. So that is one of the locations in the biblical witness for the affirmation uh, that is referred to in some circles as the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. So I thought I'd say some things about how we understand the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And in the gospel about the Good Shepherd, Jesus says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So that may open the idea that there may be a more plural way to understand the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And we should talk about that as well. The Acts of the Apostles, the, mo the reigning view among New Testament scholars, I would say most of them would say that the same person that wrote the Gospel according to St. Luke wrote the book of Acts. It's a two-volume set. And there is no reason to assume that it was written by anybody other than someone named Luke, even though the name doesn't appear in either the Gospel according to St. Luke or the book of Acts. But the tradition is replete with affirmations that it is Luke, the physician. In the Gospel, there are more accounts of Jesus' healings than in any of the other Gospels. So clearly the writer is uh, interested in the healings of Jesus and what they point to. So there's no reason to believe that Luke wasn't a physician. And in the book of Acts, we have... Uh, some issues raised about the right use of possessions and the issues of social and economic equity. And these are themes that are very much present in Luke's Gospel, more references in Luke's Gospel than any of the other Gospels about the issues of social justice and equity. So the writer is concerned about these matters. Luke is the Shakespeare of the New Testament. His Greek is the best, and this flows into the Greek in the Acts of the Apostles. So we assume him to be a Gentile Christian and a Greek speaker, and he writes in that language with ease, not as if it were his second language. And in John's Gospel, it is clear that Greek is his second language when you read it in the original. It's pretty awkward. So here's what Luke was at pains to do. Well, let me say before I say that, 
When was it written? Most people would say that the Acts of the Apostles was written before Paul's death. So it has to have been written before 62 A.D. If Paul had been martyred, surely it would have been mentioned in the book of Acts. Although there are some scholars who date this much later, it seems most reasonable to say it was probably written about 60 or 61. Remember, the earliest writings in the New Testament are Paul's letters, not the Gospels. So Paul's letters date from about 50 to about 60 or 61. And so the Acts of the Apostles w was written before 62 when Paul was martyred on the road from Ostia, the port city, to Rome. And his martyrdom site, if you've traveled to Italy and gone there, you've gone to St. Paul's outside the walls, and you've seen the church, the place where Paul is buried, the site of his martyrdom. Here's what Luke is at pains to do in the Acts of the Apostles. To defend Christianity against the charge of political subversion. Boy, I wish... That charge could be leveled at Christianity today. Somebody said to me here recently that one of the a priests they knew used to say something to the effect, um, uh, if you were arrested uh, on the basis of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? So Luke wanted to defend Christianity against the charge of political subversion as something that is what it was all about. He wanted to demonstrate the essential unity of the church in its worldwide mission. So he had the disparate Christian groups seeming to get along a lot better than in, in reality they did in history. As my grandmother used to say to us when I was a kid, dear, there was tension. So at the Council of Jerusalem, Paul is there with the apostles, and they appear to be getting along a lot more swimmingly than in fact they did in historical, the historical reality. So you will read in the book of Acts the accounts of Paul's conversion that in Galatians he will strongly disagree with. So you know that there was tension. In any case, Luke properly is interested in uh, giving some sense of unity in diversity, which, you know, as Anglican Christians, we can certainly identify with. So he was also at pains to vindicate the part in the missionary work of the early church played by Paul, and finally, to give a picture of what Christianity is and how the gospel spread to Jerusalem. So it is also about, if I can say this, the work of the Holy Spirit now present in the people of God. Luke, in his gospel, one of the main themes is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. 
And the book of Acts is about the transfer of this spirit to the people of God on Pentecost, who now become both the beneficiaries and the fiduciaries of the Holy Spirit. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen them, to empower them to do God's work in the world. And so the book of Acts, for that reason, is very important. Now we have Peter in his testimony at, uh, in front of people in Jerusalem, speaking in a way that has been construed by subsequent Christian interpreters as the affirmation of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That means no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Actually, you know, that's a Reformation idea. Because what we used to say, and in some circles we say, there is no salvation outside the church. So the idea of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ is something that is being heavily, heavily focused on by groups within the Episcopal Church today and in other places who say this is something that we, when we don't insist upon this, we have lost a substantial leg up on our missionary and evangelizing efforts because you need to tell people that unless they get with the program, Right? If you're fooling around with something else, don't bother because there's going to be trouble and plenty of it. Your post-mortem bliss will be in jeopardy. Dr. John McQuarrie, he died a couple of years ago now, he was the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford. He wrote a book all seminarians and Episcopal places read, or most places, The Principles of Christian Theology. And here's what he says about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and how we might understand it. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique. And therefore, so is Muhammad, and so is Gautama Buddha. In place of the word rejected, unique, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity which he has brought to a new level and the nature of God. For the divine logos, expressive being, which is his name for the second person of the Trinity, has found its fullest expression in Jesus Christ. Now, logos is a Greek word which can mean word, it can mean plan, and it can mean organizing principle. 
In John's Gospel, you know every Christmas we read the introduction to John's Gospel, the Johannine prologue, in the beginning was the Word, in Greek in the beginning was the Logos. So the community out of which this Gospel came understood that Jesus was the organizing principle, the template that they laid over their own spiritual life and maturity, both corporately as church, as the people of God, and over their own personal spiritual life as they sought to know more fully and more deeply God's will and purpose for them. So when we speak about the divine logos, expressive being has found its fullest expression. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history. As such, it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. You know, sometimes people who have a more literalist view of Christianity forget that most of the stuff in the biblical witness is what in philosophy you would call a posteriori. It happens after the fact. The people who wrote the uh, creation accounts in Genesis were writing and they had already been created. They were human beings who wrote the stories about how prior, above history, it happened. Right? So you need to say that all of this is our coming to terms with the deep things of human existence and understanding that all of us must pronounce by faith in history, our own personal history and our own history as a people. And that apprehension is always imperfect. You know, saying this, if you want to bring it home more rather than a highfalutin theological thing, think about in your own life how much you are governed by invisible things. Every minute, every day, your thoughts, your feelings, your personal history, your memories, you can't see those things. And yet they absolutely govern how you come to all of the circumstances of your life. And so oftentimes we need to come to our relational life with other people through faith. Because in the end, each of us remain to others a bit of a mystery. In fact, a lot of people become sick or crazy trying to figure everybody out. It can't be done. And you know what? It's okay. It's okay. So thinking about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ may not be the best plan for our missionary efforts. It may be better to speak about definitive. 
How does this work, uh, connect to the book of Acts? Peter, in his speech, is making a personal testimony of faith. He is not making a doctrinal statement. And for all faithful Christian people, what he is saying about himself and about Jesus is true for those of us who believe that in Jesus Christ we have found our greatest place of safety and assurance. And it is because we have reaped the benefits emotionally, spiritually, and mentally from our faith and belief, and that our relational life has been cleaned up when we ask, when we act as if it were true, sometimes when we don't believe it, and that we are empowered to bring health and wholeness to our relationship. When Peter, in his speech, uses the Greek word sosthenai, he is using a word that means to make whole. So you can say he is speaking about salvation as the process of coming to wholeness, being healed, and by virtue of that, receiving salvation and redemption. So always listen to this from the standpoint of his personal testimony. And he is saying this with conviction because for Peter and for his colleagues in the apostolic ministry, this is the truth that they now wish to be the transparencies and reflections of to the world. And is what we're called to do as we live our lives as Christian people, even in 2009. Whenever I read the store or the Jesus speaking about himself as the good shepherd, I this particular passage has a certain meaning to me because it was the source of some embarrassment in my first year in seminary because that is what I had to translate from Greek into English for my final test in New Testament Greek. So I didn't completely make a pig's breakfast out of it, but it could have been better. Father Edwards looked at me after he read my translation and he said, are you going to take a second year? <laughs> I said, well, I, ha I, 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 I hadn't planned on it. He said, well, it might be a good plan. One of the ways we understand Jesus is the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. Remember, I always say Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. One of the ways of understanding Jesus is as the good shepherd. Now, you and I are urban people. By and large, we haven't grown up on farms. The pastoral images of shepherds and sheep and cattle and animals are not as fresh to us. We don't have the experience of them. I worked as a teenager for two summers on a cattle ranch up near Bishop, and when we were driving the cattle from the ranch in Nevada over the mountain down into Bridgeport, we drove them over, and sometimes we'd run into the shepherds who came down to the water to feed the sheep, and the sheep would all come down. For some reason, there is a huge problem between real cowboys and shepherds. Don't ask me why. I said, these are all Basque shepherds. They're here with their dogs. The food is delicious. Get over it. <laughs> but then again, I was a city kid, right? So it meant less to me than it did to them. But we began to see how shepherds behave with sheep and what they do. 
Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. And in the New Testament original language, it really can be translated, I am the ideal shepherd. I reflect all of the qualities that we wish to see in how we think in positive terms about shepherds, nurturing, uh, seeking unity and reconciliation, leaving the 99 to go and get the one lost one and bring them back, keeping the wolves away, protecting the sheep, knowing all the sheep by name, and the sheep knowing the shepherd by name, all of those qualities I reflect in an ideal sense. Last week when I talked about the epistle from 1 John, I mentioned to you that the writer of the Johannine literature in the New Testament, all the stuff attributed to John, believed that sin was not moral lapse. Most of us, that's how we think about sin, and it's a useful way to do it because that is often moral lapse. But for the purposes of his writing to the community, sin for him was unbelief. So when John speaks today about wolves, he is speaking about false teachers who scatter the herd with all kinds of screwball ideas and that the goal of the shepherd is to once again bring back into some species of unity and reconciliation uh, all of the sheep that have been scattered and to distance themselves from the false teachers who often are driven by their own ego needs as opposed to advocating for the truth it was a real situation on the ground for John because who he's speaking about in this case are the Gnostic teachers who had a different vision and understanding of who Jesus was and different requirements that people had to adhere to in order to express the truth in their life. And so when Jesus speaks about being the Good Shepherd, he says, I bring now into unity all of the disparate views that are in front of us and we unify them unity in diversity I have other sheep that are not of this fold you know when you read the New Testament in one sense you will see that within the New Testament witness there are plural views about the deep truths of Christian faith and belief and the compilers of the New Testament, the canon of the New Testament, knew that there were these differences and they were okay. So we have four Gospels and they don't all agree. And it's okay. And we have Paul, the earliest writing, and he has a point of view, which is his ministry develops and matures, undergoes some kind of a change and development. And we have the other epistles in the New Testament who are seeking to place before their communities the issues that are in front of them as a people. 
So whenever you read these things, it's an affirmation of the importance of the plural views of Christianity, and your spiritual pilgrimage may have something to do with how you can hold in tension these various ways of thinking about things. This week, see that you might be an instrument of the Good Shepherd bringing some sense of pastoral care to your relational life. Remember, the history of salvation is not just what we read in the Bible. It is your personal history. And the biblical affirmation and the great tradition of the church with a capital T says that your personal history counts and who you are counts. And you have a role to play in big and small ways in God's plan for the cosmos. So one of the ways you can polish your missionary efforts is to understand that by extension, what Jesus Christ is by nature, the Good Shepherd, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. So see if you have an opportunity to model that in some way this week. Amen.